I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Morning, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, for our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. Really appreciate it. Uh, one quick announcement for our live podcast we announced last week. Quick update. We had to move the date a little bit because of uh, scheduling issues. So our live podcast will be at the same location, Four Sons Brewing in Huntington Beach. But we moved the date up a couple days, so it will be on Monday. December 17th, 2018. Uh, if you can get that day, uh, that evening off, uh, get your, um, what do you call it, sitters to take over the kids and, and whatnot. Uh, we'd love to see you. So come out to Four Sons Brewing, December 17th. It'll be from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, so we'd love to see you. Today we are discussing graffiti. But before we jump into that, Jason... How has your couple of weeks been since we recorded our last episode? You know, I, I just, I continue to feel like I'm a broken record these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been really busy. It's been really hectic. Um, you know, we're, we're in the thralls. We work with a couple different public build or a few different public builders. So they're pretty hefty uh, in November and December, uh, November being one of the hardest. So we're going at least a million miles an hour. Our teams are doing wonderfully with it. But uh, it's just a lot of work, man. Long days, and the teams are being pretty taxed. And 
Um, our field teams have been unbelievable, and those guys never get enough credit because they're the ones doing the real work. Yeah. Um, but it, it's been pretty gnarly. The the good thing is we finished our soccer season this past weekend. Nice. So I actually get some Mondays and Wednesday nights open and some Saturdays for the most part, which is kind of cool. Um, so I get a little bit of relief, and then, uh, but still, still hustling hard and, uh, and working stuff. And then we're headed to San Jose this weekend for Thanksgiving um, for a uh, hockey tournament, of course. So looking forward to that, but it's been crazy. Everybody's still healthy. Everybody's still good. Um, you know, can't complain, just busy, which is a good thing. You know, yeah. it's, it's a good thing. What about you, buddy? Yeah, I've been good. Like, uh, like you mentioned, it's crazy. It's to the point for me that, um, which I love that I can have a choice now. Uh, I'm starting to say no to projects actually, cause it's just been so busy. Uh, just to maintain awesome and scary at the same time though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, just to maintain quality and be able to get get this stuff out, I've had to to pass on a few projects. Which you know, when you're starting out, it's definitely scary to to say no because um, you don't know what's around the corner. But um, but I'm enjoying it. I'm uh, still getting to do a lot of different things, ex- especially with the podcast going on, and um, just enjoying it. But um, I do have to mention, since you said you're traveling, for those that may have missed our last episode, Michelle's traveling. She's in Thailand right now, right? I, I think she is. I saw some pictures. I want to say it's Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Um, wherever it is, I need to go there. I mean, it looked, <laughs> it looked amazing. But the only thing that I think was a bummer is the plane ride is a long ways away. I mean, yeah. it, it takes a long time, and I don't do very well sitting on my chair for five minutes, much less the you know, hours and hours in a plane. But yeah, I think she's in Thailand. I think you're right. Yeah. So, uh, so tune in uh, next week as well. She'll have an, our, our next episode. She'll have an update, I'm sure, um, about her amazing stories on her trip. But let's jump into it. Today we are discussing graffiti again, which is an interesting topic for me. And I'm sure you too, Jason, uh, anyone in the building industry, because it's such a controversial uh, art form especially since the buildings that we build and design are the canvas for that art form. Uh, so I'm sure there's people that have mixed feelings about it, but it's really interesting. There's a lot of layers to it. I personally love um, good artistic graffiti, not tagging, which are completely two different things, but there's a lot of levels to it, a lot of history, and, and we'll touch on that in our um, in our history section a little bit later. But uh, we brought a, a, a guest on today who's going to give us a little bit of insight of what she's doing. It's not kind of your your typical graffiti, which um, which I love. It's it's it has a lot more detail, a lot more story in it. So, despite being fresh to the art scene, this Australian artist has quickly become well known for her commercial and urban street art across the globe. Her unique approach to mandala, flora, and fauna illustrations mixed with elements of typography create iconic pieces for the world to enjoy. Please welcome Danny Simpson. <laughs> Danny, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so like I mentioned, I love your work, um, and it has so much detail. It, when you look at it, uh, you have to check her out on uh, on Instagram. Danny, what's your Instagram again? It's Danny Simpson Art. So D-A-N-N-I-S-I-M-P-S-O-N Art. So check her out. 
uh, like I mentioned, it's it's the Mandela form where uh, there's it's hard to describe, but there's these little elements and little kind of uh, Easter eggs within each piece, right? That's right. So there's a lot of like hidden elements that it's kind of it plays a trick to the eye. So you may look at it and see one thing, but the more you actually engage with the artwork, you actually find there's a lot of hidden messages within it. Um, whether it's on like a, a larger scale, which is quite obvious, or really intricate illustrations that create a different element to the artwork. Yeah. So before we move a little bit further, is there anything that I missed uh, that you want to touch on with uh, with your bio or background? I'm quite fresh to the art scene. So I started drawing about two and a half years ago, and it was actually a form um, of therapy for myself. Um, I have an anxiety disorder, so I'm quite open about that because it's actually been something that has really helped me um, sort of deal with that. And I guess you'll find a lot of artists, there's always sort of some sort of motivation behind their art. Um, For me, that's what it was. Um, As I said, two and a half years ago, I started drawing. There was no formal training. It was just some sort of way for me to to get creative. And it started off as really small illustrations on on canvases. And as I grew, so did the canvases somehow. And, um, And here we are today. I'm on the other side of the world to where I began. I'm now in Ireland where I'm from Australia. So it's been quite an exciting journey, literally from Australia to here, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Danny is actually traveling the world to do her art. People, uh, from what I understand, people are inviting you uh, to different locations to to produce your work on, on their buildings and their bars, etc. That's right. That's right. So whether it's um, a a bar, cafe, restaurant, right through to to hotel chains. Um, I also have a lot of different things like like beer companies. I just had another one just recently come up as well. Massage parlors, um, festivals as well. It all sort of is a mixed bag of different opportunities, which is exciting. Very cool. So we want to take this opportunity to give everyone a little bit of a background and to understand more about graffiti, you gotta go back in time. Sometime from 13,000 to 9,000 BCE. The earliest occurrence of ancient graffiti appeared in caves located in Santa Cruz, Argentina. Do you remember when you were a kid making an imprint in a wet patch of cement, writing your name in beach sand, or carving your initials in a tree? Humans have always had an innate urge to leave their mark as a hint at immortality, or to show an association with a group, community, or idea. The ancient Romans carved the Aleximanos Graffito on a wall of a room located near Rome, Italy around 200 AD of what is known as the earliest known image of Jesus Christ. In Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey, a Viking mercenary scribed a sentence that translated to Alden was here. In this clip from Infamy, a documentary on graffiti, graffiti artist Toomer and founder of TKO Crew shares his thoughts. Why did people carve the rocks, you know what I mean? Put the president's faces on there, you know, Mount Rushmore, why did they do that? They got a big kick out of doing big faces or did they want it to leave a mark? They wanted to leave a mark. He said, these people right here, they are, are 
founding fathers. So we're going to put their big faces on this mountain and fuck who don't like it. Who gave him permission to mark that shit up? You know what I mean? Maybe the Indians had a problem with him putting that fool's face on the mountain. How come he didn't get arrested? Ain't no different, man. That ain't your mountain that you scribed that name on. In the 5th century, the stigma of vandalism emerged. Around that time, a barbaric tribe known as the Vandals swept through Rome, pillaging and destroying the city, giving context to the term, but it wasn't until centuries later that the term vandalism was coined in an outcry against the defacing of art during the French Revolution. As society developed the concepts of property and ownership, laws and politics, graffiti became an outlet to satisfy another urge, the primal impulse to rebel. Graffiti could be a tool of self-assertion in an environment where one may feel powerless. Graffiti would eventually be known for rebellion and provocativeness, and subsequently synonymous with vandalism. The controversial style of urban graffiti that most are familiar with arose in the early 1960s in Philadelphia, the late 1960s in New York, and further developed through the 1970s. For low-income urban youth of this period, the seemingly only options to pass the time were basketball, gangs, or writing on walls. In 1965, Daryl Cornbread McRae, widely considered the world's first modern graffiti artist, was a 12-year-old troublemaker in the Philadelphia Youth Development Center. He loved Cornbread so much that the YDC cooks named him Cornbread. Instead of gang and drug activity, Cornbread, who was instantly taken with his new name, felt compelled to share it by adding his unique signature to the facility's walls. Upon his release, Cornbread took to the streets of Philadelphia to tag walls across the city. He even used the brick canvases of North Philadelphia to win over his junior high crush, writing Cornbread loves Cynthia all over her neighborhood and all along the bus route she took to school. When a local paper mistakenly reported that Cornbread had been killed in a gang shooting, the prideful young writer was determined to prove the legend was still alive. In a bold display that would forever cement his status as an icon of 1960s graffiti, Cornbread hopped a fence, snuck into the Philadelphia Zoo, and painted Cornbread Lives on both sides of an elephant. In the late 60s and early 70s, graffiti legibility, not style, was of prime importance. That's why they called themselves writers, not artists. By 1970 in New York, the writer Taki183 took graffiti to another level by covering much of New York City with his tag. He worked as a messenger, and while traveling through the city, he used a marker to write his name wherever he went, especially subway cars. As a mobile billboard, subway cars were essential to spreading your name. Eventually, he became known all throughout the city. So much so, the New York Times published an article in 1971 about Taki 183. But when this odd combination of name and fame came together in the late 1960s in both Philadelphia and New York, it really exploded. That's Kaylin Neelan graffiti artist and co-author of The History of American Graffiti. And what was so magical and so important 
in the history of American graffiti were the years really 1971 to 1975 in New York. And what happened was a generation of kids, and it's really important to remember that these were kids. They were almost nobody over the age of 19 involved in this. Developed a whole art form that went from a simple signature, just Joe was here kind of thing, all the way up to a mural that covered the entire side of a, of a subway car. And this was something that had just never been seen in our history before, an entire movement just completely developed by kids. Keep in mind, the rise of graffiti culture occurred during a tumultuous time in U.S. history, with racial and gender tensions high during the Civil Rights Movement, dissension about the Vietnam War, police brutality occurred in urban areas, an emerging prison boom, and multiple political scandals being uncovered. Politicians in the U.S. began to shift to a tough-on-crime attitude, and although many in the public appreciated the growing art form, New York City mayors John Lindsay and Edward Koch vowed to crack down on what they saw as a symptom of a larger, quote, urban problem. Cleaning up graffiti became a way to prove that the politicians were back in control. Writers soon fought back with waves of protest graffiti. They worked together warning each other about which spots were safe and which were too hot. In addition, the MTA's attempts to whitewash the trains actually expedited an evolution in writing style because there were many more potential targets with new clean canvases. The use of spray paint quickly became popular mostly used for tagging on the outside of trains. As a result, graffiti progressed to an elaborate work called masterpieces, which were done with multiple aerosol colors in the dark of night. Legibility took a backseat to style and artistic originality. Among the iconic writers of this period were Supercool223, who discovered that the larger spray nozzle allowed him to fill in letters more quickly and who is credited with graffiti art's first masterpiece. Tracy168, whose work appears in the opening credits of John Travolta's classic sitcom, Welcome Back Cotter. Phase 2, who is fittingly named given his major role in ushering in a new era of graffiti art, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, a Brooklyn-born artist whose ascent into the contemporary art world created a new path for graffiti artists by proving that they could make a leap into the mainstream art world. Basquiat first gained notoriety in the 70s for his tag Samo, which is spread across Lower Manhattan with his friend Al Diaz. In 1978, The Village Voice published an article about their work, but by the following year the project was over and the duo scribed Samo is dead across Soho to signify the end of an error. From the late 70s into the 80s, the emerging countercultures of hip-hop and graffiti would collide and together drive a youth movement worldwide. Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang and similar songs amplified the growing culture. As it became much harder to write on subway cars without being caught, more graffiti artists went into the streets and used buildings for canvases. Underground, Phase 2 pioneered the now iconic bubble style writing, interlocking type, and arrow tip letters which all set the stage for the intricate wild style brand of writing that reflected the hip hop scene. Another emerging genre was stencil graffiti of Black Lorat that appeared in Paris and later in New York City, Sydney, and Melbourne. 
Simultaneously, in the mainstream, graffiti culture was led by the likes of Basquiat, who collaborated with David Bowie and Andy Warhol, director Tony Silver, who released Style Wars on PBS, which exposed New York's hip-hop and graffiti culture to a wider audience, and Keith Haring, who gained notoriety in the 1980s as a graffiti artist, then quickly rose to fame, receiving international commissions to create highly visible public art around the world also opening a pop shop in downtown Manhattan in 1986 that proved commercial viability of graffiti art. Unfortunately, graffiti art was drowned out from the late 80s through the 90s by the narrative of territorial graffiti marks in urban neighborhoods by gangs. These images were meant to show outsiders a stern look at whose turf was whose. Yet, the art form was able to have a resurgence after the turn of the century claiming more consideration as an art in the public's eye. By 2008, Shepard Ferry, another successful artist who initially gained notoriety in the 80s as a graffiti artist, became a household name with what started as an independent tribute to the presidential campaign of then-Senator Barack Obama. His Hope poster, which was designed in one day, emerged as an icon of the 2008 U.S. presidential election. Since then, graffiti and street art has been featured in museums, film, and TV shows, and provided inspiration and fashion. Some communities and architects have even embraced the art form in collaborative efforts to help beautify cities. What started as a way for bored kids to pass the time grew into a movement larger than anyone could possibly have imagined. From being viewed as vandals who feared arrest to artists that shape communities, graffiti artists have continued to rise to the forefront of contemporary culture. Okay, Danny, I uh, wanted to start with uh, kind of where do you get your inspiration? Where do you find your inspiration for your work? Well, I guess to be creative, you, you need to be inspired. Um I find that there's different ways to be inspired um, and influenced to plan your work. For me, I'm a huge fan of different social media platforms and websites. So I use a lot of things like Pinterest and Instagram where I am networking with a huge range of different artists um, or companies who are constantly popping up different types of art across the world, whether it's small scale or, or large. Then also there's different types of technologies. There's always different types of um of of even like uh, your paint companies bringing out new things and I guess when you're following them on a platform like that it allows you to to be inspired and influenced but then you also have I have a number of different artists who I follow who continue to also push me to produce more work that I do I guess there's there is inspiration for motivating as well because it's one thing to be creative but it's another thing to turn that into a business where you can do that every day um yeah. you may find a lot of artists who are amazing at what they do but they can't have that motivation and push to be able to turn it into a, a business like what i have essentially done yeah yeah and you've um you've kind of the way you've turned it into a business has been driven highly by by technology and um, being able to easily set up a website and, and promote through Instagram and you you're selling pieces through your website right that's right so for me it was 
it wasn't an, an easy start. It was quite unexpected. I worked full time in my my previous job, which was quite different to to this. Um, and in that time that I worked full time, I also did art essentially full time outside of that. So I didn't have much of a, a social life, let's say. But art was something that I enjoyed doing. So when you work really hard and you're constantly pushing your business and using new technology like like what you've got, like Instagram and that, which is essentially like word of mouth yeah. um, and you're creating content that is quite good as well, it's inevitable that people see that it's a passion. You're not just doing it for money. You're doing it because you actually love doing it. And I think that's how I've been lucky in that way. Mm-hmm. And, that, and the way that you utilize your instagram you show process a lot which i think people kind of are attracted to to see how you come up with that how you the the entire process of when you're kind of working through things and i see you posting um you know do you like this or this one and is this good or not uh, so so you kind of pull back the curtain for for people which is kind of cool because historically no one's really seen uh, an artist's process well I think traditionally like when you have a lot of street art which used to be um you know like your graffiti which was illegal based they were done in the in the in nighttime very fast as well so no one really seen the process you couldn't put your name behind it because it, obviously it wasn't a legal piece to do yeah um now you know when there's opportunities and a lot of different um businesses or, or companies are allowing you to to work within their walls you have the ability to do it during daylight hours which is what I do and I like to document it because so often we walk down the street and we see all this different t- type of art which can be in so many different forms but you don't actually realize the amount of time that's gone behind it mm-hmm. so when I do art and people watch it and they watch it on my social media or whether or not they see me out in the street, they have a huge appreciation because they see that there's more work involved into in the actual end result. It's it's not just about here's something I've drawn on the wall. Like this is what I've put my soul and energy into creating. Yeah. So I think that's why it's really important to show the process. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned something that I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more is that uh, sort of transition from in the past, graffiti was kind of underground or was underground and looked down upon, actually. Does that sort of um, perception still lie in some some cases for you? Like while you're doing a piece, or is anyone coming up to you like, why are you doing that or, you know, giving you a tough time about it? I personally haven't had a tough time about it. I don't know whether it's because I am a girl out in the street and it's a little <laughs> bit different. I'm doing it out in, in the day. Yeah. Um, which, like, I think is a, a bit of a point of difference. And in the, in the style of my art, you can see straight away is completely different. But yeah, I wouldn't say that I've had too many issues with that myself. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of an instance, but there really hasn't been one. <laughs> yeah, because there's still some artists that that do kind of the guerrilla tactics where they they go in at night with the quick stencil, like Banksy, and um, um, I'm 
drawn a blank on some of the other ones, but there is that, that element still, but I think there's a completely dip, different perception now. People are much more accepting of it. Yeah. I think for me, my style is so intricate and so long that it wouldn't even be possible <laughs> for me to even try that. Yeah. But I will say one of my artworks that I just did in London, um, which took me a whole day to design and then another day to actually draw onto the wall, it got tagged overnight. I actually just seen that um, this morning that it had been tagged by someone uh, over my own artwork. So, you know, it... <laughs> Does that happen <laughs> often? That's the first time it's happened to me. I don't really know how to take it today. But that, you know, but at the end of the day, that is also what street art is about. It's never meant to be there for a, a long period of time. It's there to put a message across and, um, you know, six months down the track, it's probably going to be painted over and something else is going to go there, um, which is, you know, it's quite symbolic really of, of life, things that aren't meant to last forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that does show the big difference between you know what you have some graffiti art and then you have you know what I would call you know street urban art which is completely completely different yeah you know it's just funny and listen to this with the different types of <clears throat> art forms that are out there I, I generally throw like tattooing in the same category hmm. as a lot of the street art and the graffiti art because it doesn't get the recognition I think it should as far as artistry goes, right? Yeah. So I don't want to necessarily necessarily say that the process of actually, you know, making the tattoo permanent, but a lot of the skills that these these individuals have. I mean, I've I've been to people that freehand, you know, straight on me and then do their work. Yeah. Um, it's amazing, and it's it's kind of frowned upon, or people turn their nose up at that, or even you know, like you said, um, street art, graffiti art. But it's not it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> and I think really what it it's just it's it's um. And I think the hard part is people don't know how to distinguish the difference, right? So they look at graffiti art, they look at street art, they don't really understand the difference between the two. But the actual skill it takes to do what you do is is extreme, you know what I mean? And especially the size of the pieces that people do, you know what I mean? To be able to understand and have the concept in their mind and be able to not translate on that onto an you know, 8 by 10 piece of paper, but onto a wall that could be... 20 by 50 or something like that is, is purely amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny. It's like, cause I've always been a pretty creative person myself, nowhere near whatever you're doing. I'm positive. <laughs> um, but I just really appreciate those things, you know, whether it's photography or it's freehand or whatever it is. And it, it gets really honestly frustrating because like I have a buddy that's a huge fan of graffiti art and mm -hmm. he takes pictures of trains and graffiti art and he's been doing it for years and it's just, you know, you see some of the stuff in the right light and everything, and it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. And there's so much skill involved. And like I said, I kind of look at tattooing the same way. A lot of those artists and their abilities that they have, and they're never going to receive. I, I shouldn't say never. I think it's going to take a lot of time for them to receive the type of notoriety they should as somebody that's considered to be like an artistic painter or a photographer, yeah. you know, those types of things. So, um, and I think what doesn't help is you get a lot of people that do these, you know, these pieces or go tag um, areas that they shouldn't be doing. So people get a bad taste in their mouth just from that. So it almost gives you a bad name. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I think it's a shame in a lot of ways because there's a lot of beauty that goes into it and a lot of skill and talent that goes into it that I think will, that hasn't yet gotten its, its full appreciation. Yeah. I think um, where you mentioned about other artists where they'll tag different areas, I think that's also where 
um, this new form of, of having commercial and urban art has really taken on because it's it's now used as like a lot of jobs that I've actually received have been in council departments where they're actually anti-graffiti departments and they will hire artists like myself to be able to um, beautify the area which minimalises the amount of graffiti that's in that particular area because although my artwork in London was tagged overnight, <laughs> um, they didn't actually tag over any of the painting. It was just the black background. So they actually still took the time to not deface the actual art and I think that's where it comes in there's this this recognition between artists where they will still appreciate other people's artworks and that's why um, councils will hire artists like myself to actually create urban street art to hopefully reduce the amount of gravity that happens out there I saw the photo Def- it's like it's like the old saying right the best defense is a good offense yeah I love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that's really smart actually really smart yeah, I saw that picture that you posted of uh, of the tag, and it, it didn't even occur to me that that they had the respect to actually not tag over the artwork. That's interesting. Because I, I could still go there and fix it up. That's what I'm excited about. But I need to fly to London to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just make a call to someone you know in the area to go and just put some black paint over that area. Who's got a spare? Yeah. Can. <laughs> So the funny or the thing that you mentioned about, you know, councils reaching out to artists to to beautify a city is an interesting concept because I saw an article that that said um, developers use graffiti as a Trojan horse for gentrification, which I was like, what? And I and I saw so I clicked on it and it went a completely different direction that I that I expected. But in this case, in the article, they discussed uh, a building in New York that was called uh, Five Points, and it's considered like a um, non-official graffiti museum. I don't know if you've heard of it, Danny, maybe. But it's a uh, large old building, and it was just covered from the roof down to the ground, stairs, every inch of this place is covered in graffiti. And they actually got permission from the owner to do so since 1993 or so. And then all of a sudden, um, just overnight, they decided to paint the entire thing over in white. And they were going to redevelop the whole property um, as a high-rise luxury apartment or something like that. So it went a different direction. But uh, in my mind, what I thought would be the graffiti as a Trojan horse was uh, what's going on here in Los Angeles, for example, in the the Arts District. We mentioned it a couple times before. Um, It's a a few blocks in downtown Los Angeles where it's all old factories, um, office buildings that that were kind of run down for years, and new apartments have been coming in, and they've uh, renovated these buildings, uh, the existing buildings, for breweries and little shops and different things like that but they've kind of granted permission for all these artists to just uh you know paint every wall and um different surfaces so it's it's kind of become this this really cool area to be so all the um 
hipsters as as we call them uh gravitate to this area and it's a really cool environment so i thought they were going to go that direction but in my mind those are the kind of two ways that graffiti has kind of pierced this new uh evolution of of the way that we perceive things and it's starting to add value to areas actually yeah i found that as well and especially once i'm traveling um different places uh, completely different so whether it's in Australia which I found Australia was sort of starting to sort of cotton on to that where I was from on the Gold Coast um, they had really sort of cultural hipster sort of areas that they had a lot of different street art that was quite often commissioned um, by the local businesses as well to sort of build that area up as you know the it place to go but then you have other places where I originally moved to, which was um, a little, a little oh, not a little, sorry, it was a city in uh, Holland down in the south of it, and it was just really graffiti-based. They didn't have a huge art sort of scene mm-hmm. there. It was Everything was quite tagged. And then you go to where I am now, which is in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and they sort of started off with a lot of, uh, murals which were political based from back in the troubles as their way of sort of expressing their different sides in the stories and and now that that sort of passed to be able to build um, their tourism market there is a huge huge amount of art which is exactly why I'm based here as well um, a huge amount of art going into the city to tell stories that are outside of that real dark past that they've had here yeah. and a lot of a lot of businesses are doing that where they're they're creating this area where you can walk down and it's Instagrammable. You can take your pictures and it creates a personality to a city. Yeah. I saw a quote by Banksy that, that I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he ultimately <laughs> was saying that imagine a city where every inch of it was covered in all of these vibrant colors and artwork and these small little phrases that were, you know, motivating and things like that. Um, What would that do for our our society, which I thought was really interesting. I think that's really interesting too, because it it is quite, it is quite true. If you like where I see it here in Belfast, you could walk down one street and it's quite a dark sort of mural based thing. And then you go into the hub of the city where there's all these new murals that have been placed and it's a completely different vibe you get from it. Yeah. And there's that, there's that odd dichotomy for me to, uh, you know, that I wrestle with in my head as an architect is how do you, how do you have that relationship um, and how you work together? Uh, because, you know, on one side, you, you have a building that you're trying to design to look a certain way and, and you know, solve certain issues. And then someone writing on it essentially or drawing on it uh how does that how do those worlds come together and i think if you want to expound on that a little bit but i think though what you are suggesting is sort of a more controlled um relationship where you know designate areas or or something like that right yeah i think it's always going to be really hard to harmonize art and architecture when it comes to graffiti there's always going to be certain people that will come in and and deface certain walls but it's whether or not the opportunity is there so if you have a big blank white wall you're essentially putting a big white canvas in front of someone (laughs) 
Um, and if they don't have anywhere, I don't know if you've ever used an aerosol can. And the very first time I went to use one, uh, I actually landed a really big art job through the Commonwealth Games and it required me to to use aerosol on a big building. The building was five metres high by 35 metres around and I'd never used aerosol cans before and I thought, I'm going to have to practice. Yeah. Where do you practice? Aerosol, <laughs> the spray that comes out of that, it needs to be large, like a large format. It's it's really difficult to be able to express your art through through aerosol if you don't have the big walls to work on it. And unfortunately, that's exactly why things get tagged like they do as well. Unfortunately for me, I just had to learn on the wall that I was painting because I had no other option. There was nowhere for me to try. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of an example of, of perhaps why that happens. Well, that goes back to the other thing I was saying too, though, when you're talking about the media that you're using, it takes a lot of skill. I mean, it's not a controlled accurate type product you know what i mean no no uh, and that and so it's, i mean i guess with anything you got to practice what you're doing and things like that which is what you're saying but you know going back to what i was saying earlier it, it takes a lot of skill and talent to do what you guys are doing and what those individuals do out there and it's mm-hmm. just not provided the same respect because you're right i mean i've painted plenty of things with aerosol but not when i'm trying to be accurate i'm trying to just cover <laughs> a surface you know what i mean so um it's a big difference there is, there is, trust me. <laughs> I've had my fair share of lessons, I like to call them. One of the other parts of of graffiti urban art that I wanted to, to talk about is the way that you're pulling you're pulling artwork to to people that either don't normally have the interest in going to a museum or people that can't go to a museum for whatever reason, um, or just aren't privy to that type of lifestyle uh you're you're introducing art into these low income areas uh a lot of times and as well as uh in these low income areas it's often you know these ugly brick buildings that are from ages ago that are kind of run down and it's sort of dressing up these areas do you want to talk a little bit about um any of that that you've experienced or scene Danny yeah I've done a lot of different like I would say the community urban art projects um one of them was the big one that I mentioned before and that actually required basically what was happening was the Commonwealth Games were were coming to the Gold Coast in Australia and they wanted to Danny sorry sorry what is it called again The the Commonwealth Games Commonwealth Games okay yeah not the Olympic, the okay. Commonwealth. Okay. Yeah. So that that was coming to the Gold Coast in Australia and it was going to be broadcasted right across the world and they really wanted to make all of these um, council buildings a little a little bit more beautiful for the, the areas that were near the stadiums. So I managed somehow to, to get one of these buildings and it was actually a, a sewage treatment plant for a... Um, a suburb near the hockey stadium. Now, this building, no one would go near it because it smells, um, <laughs> which was my biggest thing. I had to endure the smell of that mixed in with aerosol. And let me tell you, face works oh. don't cover that smell. Oh my God. But when I was doing it, I didn't have one negative comment. And I was, did that over two weeks and all the residents walked past and, and they were actually 
stopping and going out of their way to thank me for for transforming some eyesore that they were calling it um, into something that they could walk their dogs past, you know, when they're walking the dog or when they're walking through the park, something that was a little bit more beautiful and detracted from really what it was. And I guess when it comes to to street art, for me personally, it's always about creating a story and being able to influence someone. So whether or not it's influencing them while you're creating the artwork or after the artwork and you have the message that's that's there. So uh, to give you an example of one that I did, there was a, a um, commercial sort of uh empty building lot and it was about to be built on but they had the fence that runs a- across it mm-hmm. so i created an artwork and it had uh the word moment in it um and then out of the word moment it had a butterfly and all flower all flowers and as i was painting it the all the artwork that surround me was quite was quite dark and this little girl walked past and she said to her mum oh, mum, wow, that's beautiful. That's my favourite one. And so I stopped her and said, what's what's your name? Thank you so much. And she was about five or six and she said her name was Erin. So I actually wrote her name and hid it in the artwork in the illustration. Oh, that's and cool. I, her her mum messaged me, found me on Instagram and said she went to school and was telling her mum, uh, telling her school about how there's a mural painted in the middle of Belfast that's got her name on it. And the thing is, once you do that, you inspire perhaps a little kid to pick up the pen and start drawing. And that might be something that is a gift later to them in life and they may find. So I think when you have art for that reason, um, you know, that's just a small example where you inspire people. That is what I think is really important about street art because you've just got this canvas that's in front of thousands of people every day. And why not use that canvas to be able to do something useful in the world? Wow. You answered so many questions in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I don't even want to say anything else. (laughs) I just want to leave it at that. (laughs) I'm glad I could. I I appreciate what you're doing. I applaud it. You're doing it the right way, which which is the most important, I think. In driving that in the in the proper direction, I just wish people would you know pay more attention to art and quit looking at the the negative parts. You know. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So um, thank you again, Danny. I want to plug your your Instagram and website one more time. So um, if you can you know give us your Instagram, it's Danny Simpson, right? Yeah, Danny Simpson Art. Danny Simpson Art. It says D-A-N-N-I-S-I-M-P-S-O-N art. That's right. And then is it the same for your website? That's correct. So uh, all the W's dot Danny Simpson art dot com. Okay, great. Thank you again for doing this, Danny. Uh, great thoughts, great comments. I love the stories. Um, so... <laughs> Good luck with everything as you progress. Are you going to be in Ireland for a while or? or yes, you... I will. Sorry. I don't have another trip booked for a long time, which is nice to be able to sort of settle down here and create a base here, which is really a nice sort of 
opening to Europe, if, if you know what I mean. Everywhere in Europe is just a really short flight away. Yeah. Well, you got to make it to LA to travel and, and do some work in the arts district so we can oh, so we can check to. it out. Um, I don't think you'll, you'll be able to do anything where we are in Irvine. <laughs> it's, it's a very controlled environment. So. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's being highly lenient on what really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But look forward to, to continuing to watch your story and uh, seeing your work. So thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So if you have any questions, any comments about anything we talked about today, feel free to email us hello at spacespodcast.com or you can uh, check us out on social media. Follow us all over at Spaces Podcast. We want to thank you again for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and forward a link to a friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also check out spacespodcast.com under the listen tab for photos and notes on things we talked about today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. The airlines were getting a subsidy to carry mail in their very earliest stages. As a matter of fact, they really didn't want to carry passengers because they didn't have to feed the mail. They just put it on the plane. It was a simple process. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.